Welcome to the Oracle. Here you will meet innovative and curious minds as they share their visions on how we can tackle today's global challenges. Listen as our oracles explore what makes a difference in cities, homes and for the planet at large. The Oracle is made by Munk Studios in collaboration with IKEA. Katarina Grafman is a doctor of cultural anthropology, an author and lecturer who specializes in consumer culture and how media technology alters behavior. She's done extensive studies on people's relationship with consumption and the different contexts that affect them. In this episode of The Oracle, Katarina talks about the need to move away from the information-based approach we have today of tackling climate change and bring more humanity into our solutions, so we can reach people in all the different contexts and cultures we find ourselves in. It's a rainy morning in Stockholm in the year 2050. I'm sitting at my kitchen table drinking my morning coffee and looking out over the city. Happy that the little garden of flowers and vegetables growing on my balcony is getting some fresh rainwater to drink. But also a bit sad that my plans for the day got cancelled because of the weather. Suddenly my phone rings and it's a friend of mine that lives in Copenhagen. Do you want to come down here and have lunch, she asks. And I gladly answer that I'll be over shortly. Everyday life today isn't too much different from how it was back in the early 2020s. Well, in general at least. Most people still live in big cities, hurrying around, trying to meet all of the deadlines and appointments of the day. But there have been several significant shifts that have helped us to get this far. Because humans came to the brink of extinction as a result of our own actions, the systems we lived in had to be changed. The governing of societies, production of food, goods and services, transportations, everything had to have humanity and the natural environment in focus instead of just constant financial growth. We transformed our cultural system. We made away with things like transportation that relies on fossil fuels, for example, and instead solar-powered cars and hyper-speed electric trains are the new norm. So going from Stockholm to Copenhagen for a lunch, then Paris for dinner, only to be back home at a pretty reasonable hour for bed, is a simple thing to do and helps make us all feel closer to each other. The culture of limitless consumption of resources had to come to a stop. It wasn't just an unsustainable way of living, It was a wrong way of living, threatening the survival of our planet. And this isn't a far too distant future. We have the capability to make it there, and I'm optimistic that we will. Let me tell you why. 
is Katarina Grafman, and I'm tuning in right now from Stockholm. I'm a doctor of cultural anthropology. Anthropology is the study of what makes us human. Anthropologists explore how people in different societies and places live and understand the world around them. In my everyday life, I help companies and organizations to understand how humans really behave and what makes a meaningful everyday life. I actually started my academic career studying literature, but a few months in, I started feeling like, oh my God, what am I going to do with literature? So then I switched to economics instead, because it was also that time in my life confused if I should dedicate the next few years to something I felt was fun and intriguing, or something more practical I could make a living from. And that type of thinking is still common today. In several of my studies through the years, I have focused on younger generations, and it's the same there. Instead of choosing subjects that really interest you, you mostly go for things you think will give good opportunities in the future. Like for example, economics, legal studies, engineering. I even hear the same reasoning from one of my sons. But I told him that if you choose something you really, really like, you will always find a job. Well, I'm speaking from experience myself. Studying economics didn't work out too well for me. I made it to the statistics portion of the course, and then I had to rethink my decision. I found anthropology in the course listings, and it looked really interesting. After the few first lectures, I was hooked. Learning about the ways people interact with each other, how different cultures are organized around the world, and how important it is to understand culture to really understand humans and society sparked something within me. So for me, when I do my job, it's not work. Because I do what I am. Had I become an economist, I would probably go to an office and do my work there, and then I have my life. But I think it's great that I can be an anthropologist and also do it for a living. Although it comes with its pros and cons. I live with these thoughts of our cultures and I think, read and write about it all the time. It's like I'm impregnated by it. So it's difficult for me to not also interpret my own life all the time. Because that's what I do when I meet other people. So when I'm with friends and in their houses, they get nervous like, oh my god, now she's coming. Have we put everything away so she won't sneak around studying us? So is that what I do as an anthropologist? Sneak around in people's houses? Yeah, sometimes. The anthropological research method is all about spending a lot of time together with people we want to understand. In their natural environment in their places, together with their friends and family. We see what people do, not only listen to what they say they do. In one of my anthropological studies, I followed Linda for a few weeks. And one day Linda said that it was time to throw away her children's toys now that they've been adults for a long time. Linda holds up a doll, looks at it, and remembers how she and her daughter used to play with it together. And she's smiling, 
all those memories and emotions pop up in her mind, all connected with this object. You know, I think I'll save this for a while, she says, and with gentle hands puts the doll back in its bed. The same procedure repeats itself several times, and in the end, almost no toys are discarded. Linda and the doll are good examples of how things work in our lives. Things are filled with meanings through its connections with different situations and relations in our life. Whether we like it or not, most parts of today's world can be defined as consumer culture. Consumer culture is a form of materialistic culture facilitated by the market. And that creates a special relationship between the consumer and the things or services we consume. Like Linda's special relationship with her daughter's doll. A culture like this is not a trivial byproduct of production. It's a powerful medium for social exchange and interactions. Consumer culture gives us the tools to express who we are. Or maybe who we want to be. What we buy and display to others define us as humans. So it's much more a socio-cultural and symbolic act rather than something we do to fulfill basic needs. And we see this culture manifest in the way we tend to describe our world. For example, we nurse our individual brands, nature is a resource, relations are investments, pupils are customers, time is a scarce resource, and knowledge a competitive advantage. But what is culture anyway? It's our social context. A culture is a group or a community that shares common experiences and ideas that shape the way its members understand and behave in the world. Culture gives meaning and rules to everything in our everyday life. All the ways we define and categorize people and things are supplied by culture. So are all the ways we define time and space. Culture is a bit like language. It is just there. Culture has thousands of rules we often adapt unconsciously. Like a child who learns to speak a language fluently without knowing anything consciously about grammar. And I want to talk about culture because there is a weird paradox in our society that we have to address. On one side, we have the idea about the rational mind, meaning that when we try to understand why humans behave in certain ways, we focus more on rational reasoning than on the social and cultural contexts. This idea of rationality not only predominates in academia, but can be found everywhere in our assumptions about ourselves and the world. On the other side, we have marketing, which seeps into every hole of our existence, trying to persuade us to desire and consume stuff through our social and cultural context, and very successfully so. One consequence of this idea of rationality is that we think that the optimal way to change people's behavior is through information and facts, especially when it comes to saving our planet. 
If we get enough information and facts, then we will change. And if we don't change, well, the reason is obvious. We just need more information and more facts. But really, we can't even handle all the information and all the options we're already given today. The idea of the freedom of choice has become a kind of religion. And in our lives, we are constantly forced to shift from making small decisions to making bigger commitments with larger dimensions. It is not uncommon that people put more effort in choosing what shampoo to pick, what color, effect, brand, and how to save money for the retirement. The overload of choices make us so tired that we are unable to prioritize between minor decisions and choices that are of real importance. We become paralyzed and indifferent, only focusing on what's in front of our eyes right this moment. Another aspect of information is that it's really difficult for consumers to determine what is a sustainable choice or not. There is so much information that is too complex and inconsistent. Take the plastic straw or plastic bags, for example. We thought it was the worst choice. We heard about plastics in the oceans, plastics in the fish, plastics everywhere. So of course we should find better alternatives to that. But now scientists say that paper bags are not a better choice. And cotton bags, they are the worst of them all. Because the resources used to make them outweighs the good you think they do. Consumers need to know, for instance, how a bag is produced, how many times we need to use it, and how long it will take to decompose to be able to make the most sustainable decision. Another example I like to use when giving lectures is people buying roses and a box of chocolates to their grandmother. Everybody knows that cut flowers are really a disaster for sustainability because they usually have to be shipped from Ecuador, who today is the biggest producer of roses in the world. And the chocolate is filled with palm oil, one of the most devastating resources to harvest. But still, you buy them when you go to your granny, because you know she loves to get the flowers and she loves chocolate. And that's not irrational in that sense, because you do that to strengthen your relationship. I talk about humanistic rationality instead, because we do so many things that are irrational in a social view to our context. But you need to understand it's rational in another perspective. So, we see a lot of good intentions from politicians, corporate leaders and governments to prevent the climate from collapsing. But still, we won't change. We spend an enormous amount of time discussing why we don't behave as we know we should. And the reason behind this frustration is that the idea of the rational mind is still so strong. 
When we try to understand humans through the lens of rationality, humans are understood as creatures without culture. We see psychologists and behavioral scientists performing all these studies on individuals in very controlled environments, which is actually pretty problematic. Think of it like someone who wants to study lions and doing it by studying them in a zoo, never in the lion's natural settings. Another very rational method when trying to understand people is self-reported service. But anthropologists know very well that humans don't really say what they think, know what they feel, or do what they say. But to give up the idea of rationality is to accept that we are somewhat slaves under our feelings, desires, needs, and that we're also part of a bigger system called culture. And this is scary because we're in love with the idea that most things in our lives are a result of rational choices and that we made them as free individuals. The other idea that we are tiny bricks in something much bigger. Bricks in a cultural wall is not very flattering. Nobody wants to be irrational. Acting on other premises, say more social and cultural rationality, is not how we are nursed to understand life. Or we might say something like, hmm, well, I agree some people are irrational. But that's them, it's not me. But think of Linda again, and the doll. She's not acting very rational. No one is using the doll, so why save it? But looking from a different perspective, one could say that Linda is acting according to another rationality, a social rationality. Socially, Linda feels that if she gives the doll away, she abandons some parts of the relationship with her daughter. There are many aspects of being human, but the most important thing is to be part of and participate in our social groups. We are all pack members and belong to different tribes. Our friends, family, workplace or our hobbies puts us in different cultural contexts. Our social circles affect us so much more than any information ever will. And in order for the information to sink in and become a behavior, something additional needs to happen. And that something is often the culture of the groups we participate in. So to understand the dynamics of the groups, you not only look at observable behavior and listen to people's values, You delve into the underlying assumptions, which are normally unconscious, but which determine how group members think, feel and act. As an anthropologist, I'm obsessed with culture. I believe that only by understanding the social role of consumption in consumer culture, it's possible to change it. It's like an iceberg. And we're too focused with what we can see above the surface. When we really need to go below it if we really want to get things done. 
and include underlying assumptions that determine how group members behave. Instead of focusing on individual actions, let's have an awareness of culture and context so we together can change a cultural logic that is sick and makes the planet sick. If we put the responsibility on individuals, we risk creating a culture of passivity and pessimism and it will fail. It's only when we feel part of a bigger context that we will change. So unsustainable consumption is not an information problem, but a system error. Today's work with information as a means of influencing consumers is therefore inefficient and thus mainly a waste of money. But what can be done to change the system and influence our culture? We could regulate marketing for products that affect the environment negatively in the same way we do when it comes to things that affect our health, like cigarettes, gambling or alcohol. Nudging is a great concept, trying to get people to make more healthy and sustainable choices without having to process a lot of information. And there are so many things we can do to make people act without having to think. Smaller plates at restaurants to minimize food waste. Trash cans and ashtrays to get rid of trash in nature and in the streets. Product placement in the food stores to make people buy more green food. It has to be easy to do right. There are other ways things are changing that makes me feel positive about the future. Of course, there are the rapid technological advancements we're making when it comes to green energy. But the discourse about people is starting to shift. There's more academic research, books and articles about the limits of a scientific approach with rationality and information in the center. How we can't measure and quantify everything around us with pure logic. The type of experience and knowledge needed to help us move forward is more and more sought after in companies trying to keep up with the challenges the future holds. In an age obsessed with hard science, it's becoming painfully obvious that the so-called soft subjects, social sciences and humanities, have the power to reveal what otherwise remains obscure. And something that might seem small, but is actually really significant, is that the subject of sustainability is an everyday thing today. I say that because I've been doing studies on so many different aspects of people's everyday life. In one study from 2015, the only thing that actually came up regarding sustainability was that people were angry that the storage for sorting was so small in their newly built apartments and that their district demanded that they start to sort everything they threw away. People were not talking about sustainability for a couple of years ago. Today, people can go out and have a beer after work and discuss sustainability the whole evening. It's such a huge difference in just five, six years. And I think that's great, because if you want to change people, 
First, you need to change what kind of ideas and thoughts that occupy people's minds. I told you I was optimistic. And now you know why. You've listened to The Oracle, a podcast produced by Munch Studios in collaboration with IKEA. For more details and all the episodes, please visit h22.ikea.com.